Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be recounting my experiences at the Society of Biblical Literature Annual Meeting 2018. And this was in Colorado. I know it's been about half a year since then, but I, I figured it's just finally time, finally time to put all my experiences pen to paper and get them down and out there. You know, every time I keep trying to record this, like I'm like sick and then like my voice is out. And then by the time my voice is back, I want to do a podcast on something else. Finally, it's time. Finally, it's time to do this podcast. Speaking of voices being out, uh, there there's only one time in my life where my voice was out like dead gone for like an entire week. Uh, that I, I couldn't talk. I couldn't, I could mumble things. I'd be like, but I couldn't actually really talk. And that coincidentally was the same week that I went to uh, this uh, Society of Biblical Literature annual meeting. So the whole time I'm there, I'm meeting famous people and going up to Bart Ehrman and stuff like that. Like, and I, I could barely talk. And they're looking at me like I'm sort of some sort of uh, disgusting, like uh, infected uh, homeless guy or a smoker, like a chain smoker, maybe. The worst part about that was that when we were on our way, I loaded up all my kids because uh, my, my sister, of course, lives in Denver, so I had a place to stay. Fantastic. I loaded all my kids in the car. We're driving. We're on our way there. We're in like Des Moines, Iowa, something like that. And uh, my son, he gets this really, really bad nosebleed. His nose is just bleeding everywhere. And the, the really scary thing about this is that uh, before he had his cancer diagnosis at a, age six, this exact same thing happened to him when I drove him to soccer practice once. His nose just started bleeding, and there's no stopping it. And I, I grabbed this uh, like picnic towel out of uh, the back seat, and I'm mopping up all the blood, and the blood just kept coming. That was scary stuff. I thought he was going to die of blood loss. And this is the same type of nosebleed that was going on on our way to Denver. I took off all this time from work in order to go to this conference. And, uh, you know, then it's like... What, now are we, are we going to spend the whole time in the hospital? Is he going to get diagnosed again with, with cancer? What, what is going to go on? Is is he going to be okay? You know, and, and I'm driving around Des Moines, or Des Moines, I don't know, Iowa, and we're looking for places. We're going into acute cares. They're redirecting us to emergency room, which isn't on my GPS. And, and we, we run into this uh, emergency room. I'm like, oh, my, my son is not And I'm all like both choking up and I don't have any voice and they're looking at us like we're crazy and they bring us in the back room and they're taking care of him. I'm calling my wife and uh, just hectic, crazy. Turns out the kid's okay though. They gave him like one of those little nose things, those nose clips that uh, is really good because sometimes he gets nosebleeds. Not ever really this bad. This is probably the second worst he had in his life, but just the timing of it all was very inconvenient and, uh, yeah, it, it was not conducive to a very happy, happy moment in my life. But it's okay. He's got no cancer that I know of anymore. And so we're all good. Thank you for asking. But back to the story. We're back here in Denver, Colorado. And we go to the first session. And I say we because my brother's in Denver at the time. And he, I'm like, hey, come with me. And he's like, no, no, I can't. they're not, not going to let me in. And I said, it's the first day. It's it's not even like a real day for this uh, Society of Biblical Literature meetings. They're not going to be checking IDs. No one cares. Jump in the car. He jumps in the car. We drive there. Sure enough, he was able to get in. We go to Richard Middleton. He's the author of A New Heaven and a New Earth. One of the top five books that any Christian should read. Top five books. Read that book, uh, New Heaven and the New Earth, Richard Middleton. 
His speech was great. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about his compatriots. How the sessions are set up is you'll like have one session and then you'll have three different speakers. And then you'll have a series of a speaker, question, answers, speaker, question, answers, speaker, question, and answers. I think Middleton was first in his. So let's, let's go pull up his lesson over here in Society of Biblical Literature. So his was the dynamics of responsible biblical interpretation towards a creational a pneumatic hermeneutic so a spiritual hermeneutic how do you read the bible through the spirit and that's what this whole lesson was on so the other two people were speaking uh they're talking whatever it was wasn't as interesting as uh, middleton's middleton actually argued that when we do dil due diligence and we study the bible and we try to understand it in its ancient context and and we we just invest ourselves our time and our effort into understanding and reading that's a spiritual reading of the text it doesn't have to it's not a mystical experience it's not being like overcome by some sort of animation that that enlightens us and we're reading the text and right afterwards the question and answers there's this catholic guy who's trying to call middleton to task he's like well if you don't feel anything it's not real the spirit has to guide you and middleton says yeah a competent study and and learning and and knowledge that that is the spirit guiding you that was his position it was a, it was a good speech I, I was pretty pretty impressed by middleton but afterwards we walk up to middleton and I introduce myself, and he doesn't know who I am because he can't understand what I'm saying. He just thinks I'm this homeless, weird dude. But my brother was there, and my brother starts talking to him, and they get on the subject of Babylon. And Middleton has an interesting take on the Tower of Babel. So they're on Babel, Babylon. And Richard Middleton, his take on the story of the Tower of Babel is that it's a critique against the Babylonian Empire. And it's not a myth explaining the di diversity of language in the world that we see around us. And I, I Googled it. I just did it like three seconds ago. And the first article that comes up has Milton's name in it. So uh, he might be one of the primary proprietors of this uh, type of reading of the Tower of Babel. But we'll read a little bit of what he says about that. And then you could, you could search on your own if you want to learn more about his take on the Tower of Babel. Middleton. It is my contention that the narrative of Genesis 11, 1 through 9, even if it first suggests a superficial surface reading that positively affirms Babylonian Mesopotamian civilization, ends up subverting that reading. A canonical interpretation of the text suggests that it ultimately protests the hidden systematic violence beneath the Babylonian Mesopotamian civilization by stripping away its punitive divine legitimization. Babel is thus disclosed as nothing more than a human construction, and a violent one at that, in which those powers suppress the perceived social forces of chaos in the name of divine order. Thus, contrary to the mythic tradition that the name Babel means gate of the gods, Genesis 11 ironically claims that the true significance of Babel is confusion. So the next event I went to was actually like a real-life legitimate open theist event, and it was... Uh, so Thomas J. Ord had wrote his books about how God can't interfere with people's free will and God's primary attribute is love. And this uh, guy, Eric Siebert, he wrote a book or a paper on uh, disarming God, reappraising divine violence in the Old Testament. And so his presentation was basically that, that the stories in the Old Testament don't actually depict God as violent and God's not responsible for the evil that happens. And responding was Terence 
Fretheim. I think I'm finally saying that right. I always say it wrong. Fretheim. I usually say something like Fretheim and everyone's like, why, why are you always mispronouncing words? Well, I, I only read words. I don't hear them anywhere, so I read them. But uh, Terrence Fretheim, and he was responding, and he's a biblical scholar, and he, his points were absolutely great. He, he pointed out that, yeah, uh, because God is creator, God is Lord, God is sovereign over the universe, the things that happen within this universe in some way is his fault. He bears some responsibility for the things that happen. We're not going to find a theology that puts no blame or no responsibility or no backlash against God. It's, it's, we're, we don't live in that world where, where the creator God, who resides over a universe in which bad things happen, does not bear some of the blame, bear some of the responsibility. Uh, as a beautiful point by Terence Freethium, biblical scholar and uh, the the presenter, big fan of Terence Freethium. Freethium is more of a biblical scholar that focuses towards love. He wrote uh, "Divine Suffering" or "The Suffering of God" was his book in which he he really focuses on God's love throughout. And one of his criticisms of Walter Brueggemann is Walter Brueggemann is is more blunt and uh, doesn't try to interpret everything in that same way. So I was really surprised. I was really surprised Fretheim was taking that uh, position, but I agree. I agree. Um, if you you are a parent and your kid turns out bad, um, you although you might have not have directly caused that, you you do bear some responsibility for the events that do happen. We don't have a theology in which God has no blame for any sin in this world. That, that's that's not a theology that exists. But other than that, you know, my brother was there with me. Uh, we met John Sanders was there. Terrence Fretheim was there. Thomas J. Ord was there. Neil Short was there. It was just everyone was there uh, shaking hands. I was like, my name's Chris Fisher. And I got, you know, the terrible voice. And it's like, yeah, my brother has to do my talking for me because I couldn't talk, you know. Um, <laughs> so this uh, we were talking to this girl. This, this girl came and she like ate lunch with us one of these days. And she's like, uh, and I'm like, and then then she learns that I had a podcast and she's like, oh, oh, you you have a podcast. And it's like, Duh, this is this is not my normal voice, not my normal voice. And she's like, oh, that makes a lot more sense because I thought that would be a terrible, terrible podcast. Well, well, it might be a terrible, terrible podcast, but, uh, you know, that, that's probably not the, due to the voice or anything like that. But moving on, moving on. That was a good night, uh, hanging out with my brother and a bunch of open theists. So the next morning, I started off by going to this panel called the Evangelical Philosophical Society panel about divine impassibility. And I, I was skipping up a session that uh, featured Karen Strand Wislow. And she's an open theist author and commenter on, I think, her books on the Kings. But I had to miss her because I had to get to this one because it had James Doezel. James Doezel, he, he wrote that uh, The Divine Simplicity God or The Simplicity of God and All That Is God. Two great books. Uh, great uh, metaphysician. Uh, I don't agree with him on anything, but he is the guy who's knowledgeable about these issues and the his historicity of his views. All these other Calvinists they missed or they don't understand. Like I did that poll on uh, you know one of those Calvinist Facebook groups, over 100 votes, and half of them had never heard of divine simplicity. These people don't know their own theology. But I went there to see James Dozel. Also on the panel was Thomas J. Ord. And then there was an Armenian guy. I don't know the guy's name. Uh, Dan Castillo, maybe, or John Peckham. 
Uh, I'm not sure what's going on there, but Jave Dozzle was not actually there. He had a substitute guy uh, who, who had to sit in for him because I think Dozzle had some some sort of like airplane trouble. So so I skipped this uh, Karen Winslow and uh, to see James Dozzle, and he doesn't even show up. So I didn't even get to meet the guy. But I did get to point out during that session, during questions and answers, that uh, James Dozzle in his book points out that his his theology falls apart when we're talking about divine action and God creating the world that he does. Because if this is a necessary world, if he couldn't have uh, had any freedom in creating this world, everything's by necessity. Everything's like co-equal with God and eternal. And that's the one part of his book that Dwezel appeals to mystery. And I read that part of the book in my question. You know, I'm struggling with my voice to read it out loud uh, in my scratchy voice, doing the best I can. And the panelist, the, the Calvinist guy there, he agreed. He says, yeah, that that is the one weak part of our theology. That's the one thing that we really... We don't really uh, have any answer to, but uh, it does exist, and it, it is it is, it is rel- well recognized that that is a downfall of their theology, God's freedom to create. Did, was he forced to create this world? Did he have freedom to create? If he does have freedom to create, you add potentiality to God. He's no longer pure actuality. He's not no longer pure simplicity. The, the creation aspect, that's even where the Platonists criticized the Christians, because in Platonism, God couldn't act. God couldn't create. The, the world was a reflection on an, on itself, a reflection on God, and that's what spawns the world. And, but the one, the, the eternally simple God, he couldn't have any part in creation. And so there, there's, there's, there's where <laughs> you know the, the criticisms come about, and they don't have an answer. And it doesn't work in their systematic. Not that I buy their systematic, not that I think it's a rational systematic, but inherently embedded in their system is that contradiction. The next place I went was to see Reed Carlson, and Reed Carlson has a really good paper on on what's going on in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, and we'll we'll have to review that sometime. I sent the guy an email. I said, hey, you should come on the podcast. We'll do it on that, and on your presentation that you did at the SBL. He's like, no, nah, I'm in, I'm in uh, conversations for a book, so he's going to go do his book instead, and that's fine, but his book and this presentation was about the spiritual possession, especially the witch of Endor. And we're looking at the Saul experience where Saul kills all these uh, mediums. Uh, he kills everyone who could summon the dead. And then he has to go seek one of them out in order to summon Samuel from the depths, from Hades, from from Sheol. And he comes up as like a spirit. This is where you see that word Elohim used of a dead Samuel. Samuel is an Elohim, uh, just like the angels are sometimes called Elohim. And uh, what happens there is Reed Carlson argues that Samuel possesses the body of the witch. Saul can't see Samuel himself. The witch has to see him. And then there's a dialogue between Samuel and Saul, which is probably actually occurring between Saul and the medium who's being possessed by Saul in this context. And so it was a very, very interesting uh, panel, and I'm glad I went. I had to bug out early, so I wasn't able to hit them up afterwards for anything. So the reason I had to bug out early was to get to a speech by Elaine Pagels. This is the one I really wanted to attend to talk to her and meet her. It's called New Resources for Pauline Reception History. Is the Gospel of Truth Paul's Secret Wisdom Teaching? You know, she's the famous person. She wrote that book on Revelation, and she wrote the book on the Gnostics. Uh, she wrote a book on Satan that's actually pretty decent. Uh, so I needed to go meet her. So I head over there, and lo and behold, 
Uh, just like James Dozel, Ellen Pagels wasn't there. She had uh, flight issues or something, but she did have a second session the next day. So I was eventually able to meet her, but uh, I gave up talking to Reed in order to go find Ellen Pagels, and she wasn't even there. Ah, common theme, common theme in this conference. The last session I went to on, on that day was called Explorations in Theology and Apocalyptic. And I thought, wow, this is going to be all about apocalyptic theology. So I go there and I'm in a room with like 20 other guys and they stand up. All these panelists are standing up talking about what seems to be me to be absolute nonsense. I'm like, I, I don't know what I walked into. And all the people in the seats are all like nodding their head and they're like, they're like excited for this stuff. And it just just seemed nonsense to me. <laughs> Absolute nonsense. So here's the book that they were all responding to. There are three panelists, and they're all responding to this militant grace, the apocalyptic turn and the future of Christian theology. It says, this clear and comprehensive introduction to apocalyptic theology demonstrates the significance of apocalyptic readings of the New Testament for systematic theology and highlights of ethical implications of the apocalyptic in term of biblical and theological studies. Written by a leading theologian and proponent of apocalyptic theology. When they say these words, I don't think they mean what normal people mean when when they when they hear those words. I don't know. You guys could jump on Amazon. You guys could pull it up and read excerpts or whatever from this book. But to me, it sounded like uh, absolute nonsense and not about apocalypticism whatsoever. I'm looking forward to Bart Ehrman's new book. His new book is going to be about apocalypticism. I'm sure that will be coherent. So the next day I wake up and I go to the conference and I, I, I scout out the room that Ellen Pagels is going to be speaking at for her first session. So I kind of hang out in the hallways or whatever, waiting and watching for her so I can meet her. I didn't want to go to this session of hers because it was in competition with a couple other ones. There's this uh, Grand Generad, Yahweh, the God of Heaven, an incipit interpretatio precisia of Yahweh into Arhamadaza. Uh, that's the name of his session. So he's, he's talking about the God of heaven. He's talking about ancient phrases. One thing that's great about SBL is they, they talk about ancient Near East religion and concepts, things that you're not going to hear at normal places. Normal people don't talk about this sort of stuff. The God of heaven, you know, and this phrase is used. I, iconography was, was pretty big at this session. So I wait outside in the hallway. I'm waiting for Ellen Pagels, and I, I see her walk in. So I walk up to her, start talking to her. She's like, oh, do you work here at all? I'm like, no. She's like, I'm not sure where I'm going. I'll, I said, I'll show you where you're going. And I'm talking to her the whole way. She's just a fantastic individual, uh, elegant and charming. I was just smitten. She's the, one of the greatest people I've ever met. If If she was 50 years younger. No, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, no, she's good. But I wasn't able to go to that session because I had to get to that iconography session uh, about Yahweh. Those ones are, are really fascinating. I really wanted to see what those individuals would be saying. So I had to bail out early, had to bail out on Ellen Pagels. I broke my heart, shattered my heart, but I did get to the Yahweh one. And lo and behold, who is sitting there in the back seat? It's uh, William Lane Craig. So William Lane Craig at this whole SBL thing. I saw him a couple times. Uh, I saw him at this one and then later at uh, the John Day one where John Day is talking about the serpent in Genesis. And William Lay Craig, he is a Christian apologist. So he, he'll he go around and he'll talk metaphysics. That's what he really cares about is metaphysics. And so when he's arguing with atheists, it's all about, oh, the ontological principles. And, and he's really well-spoken and, 
And atheists don't like debating him because he's he's really good at debating. He's really well-spoken and he, he understands his stuff. Not that I agree with everything he says and not that anyone should agree with everything he says. He's just a really fluid speaker. So it seems like his purpose at the SBL was to go around to all these ancient Near East type of sessions and then during questions and answers, uh, try to undermine the reality of of the thought of that time. So like, for example, at, at the Genesis one, he's, he starts talking about, well, you know, are, are is this, do they actually believe that these events actually happened as depicted? And in, in the iconography one with the wings and they're talking about Assyriology, you know, the Assyrian depictions of God, he, he's asking questions like, well, could it be that the Assyrians didn't actually believe that these depictions of the gods that they were making and, these were more figurative, you know, it seems like his goal, his goal was uh, to try to, uh, he has some cognitive dissonance where his, his, uh, you know, he, he believes these metaphysical things about God. And then he comes to the Bible and he sees these stories that are fundamentally opposed to the properties he believes exists in God. So he's looking for justification, uh, to, uh, to 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 hold two simultaneous beliefs at once that his metaphysics is true and the bible is true and so uh it was funny i i thought it was great i met the guy i shook, shook his hand i asked him a question this was at the john day session i asked him a question it's about about divine simplicity because uh he he states somewhere in one of his articles that he rejects divine simplicity which which is it's, it's a very bold stance to take because not many theologians are going to take that stance and he does and so i asked him about it and he yeah he confirmed to me that he does in fact reject divine simplicity so i got my little conversation i like wrote it like uh the same day or whatever and uh, meet william lane craig so you hold that god is not simple that is correct in the same token god is not immutable yes god is changeless sans creation but not immutable once God creates, he changes, such as such as knowing what time it is. Me. In your view, God is not timeless? I have a weird view. He is timeless before creation, but once he creates, God is in time. So this is William Lane Craig's idea of uh, just the creation metaphysics. And that that's interesting. It, it undermines all these things that uh, a lot of metaphysicians, metaphysicians, they love. They love divine simplicity. They love pure actuality. They love immutability. They love simplicity. And William Lane Craig denies all these classical tenets of the faith. Uh, so it's good. Molinists need to uh, understand that uh, any of their arguments against open theism as open theism not being traditional Christianity, they're on the same, on the same page. They, they also reject uh, pretty much... Uh, all the classical teachings that uh, open theists reject. It's good. It's good. So this session, the purpose of this session was basically to compare Yahwehistic religion to religion of uh, other other religions of the time, even Egyptian religion and Achmedin, uh, Achmenid, Achmenid slash Egyptian context. And one interesting uh, Bible verse that came up that. It bears more investigation is Malachi 4.2. Before you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And one of the ancient symbols that we see in all sorts of iconography is the winged sun disc. So is that what this is referring to? Something along that, under that vein. You know, like the legend of Horus and Belladute and the winged disc. 
And, you know, these, these things exist out there. The iconography is very interesting, especially when we're talking about ancient Israel and winged beings. We have our entire podcast on the wings of God, where we talk about some of these things and some of these findings. Very interesting. The next session I went to was this, uh, what did Paul know about the historical Jesus? Uh, it didn't seem to be very informative. I got a whole whole paper of uh, notes that they handed out and, uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't exactly what they had advertised it to be. So I left that session. I went to an N.T. Wright session. I was able to meet N.T. Wright just briefly. Uh, he didn't seem to want pictures with people, but he did take a picture with me. Uh, his session was really good. He was with Peter Enns and John Dominic Crisson. Uh, they were funny. They were engaging. They had a lot of crosstalk. Peter Enns is talking about his persecution from the Calvinists when he started teaching things that didn't fall in standard line with all their theology and and he was basically blacklisted. And uh, John Dominic Crossan had good jokes. I, I wonder if there's a video somewhere. A video of that would be very good to watch. But uh, a lot of good dialogue there. Peter Enns is a great guy. I don't think I got a picture with him. Probably not. But it was good. I had to, I had to bail early. Bail early because a little bit more important than N.T. Wright was John Day. The Serpent in the Garden. This is that uh, other session that I was talking about. John Day wrote the book Yahweh and the Gods and Goddesses of Canaan. It talks about ancient Near East religion. A good book. John Day, he's, he's a good scholar. He's like a Mark Smith. Mark Smith wrote, has written a lot of books. And they do actually have some crosstalk on uh, especially the sacrifices to Moloch. So John Day maintains that the sacrifice to Moloch is a sacrifice to an actual god that's identified as Moloch. And Mark Smith maintains that the sacrifices to Moloch was a type of sacrifice and you'd be making a sacrifice to Yahweh, but it'd be a sacrifice to Moloch because that's just what it's called. That's that's the name of the sacrifice. The sacrifice to Moloch is, is the fire child sacrifice. But John Day's good. Uh, I, I got a picture with him. He's like, you want a picture with me? And he's like this this weird looking guy or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a big fan. I love your stuff. I love your work. But his, his presentation was on the serpent in the garden, a critique of some recent proposals. And recent proposals, people are saying that this snake in the garden was actually a good guy. The, the text is meaning to say that this serpent was good. You know, there's a lot of modern proposals. So he, he listed modern proposals and he basically shot them all down. He critiqued them and he held with the traditional that the snake is a villain or a deceiver in this story. And uh, of course, not divine. I was able to ask him the question during questions and answers. When When's the earliest uh, time where people started identifying the snake in Genesis with with uh, Satan, and he stated wisdom. Wisdom 2, I don't know, the last verse in wisdom. Let's uh, see if I got it in my Apocrypha. Wisdom 2.24, Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that do hold of this side do find it. And so that's possibly the earliest reference to the snake actually being uh, the devil in Genesis. But I don't know if that's conclusive at all. I don't, I don't know if that's the case. I pointed out to him that in Revelation that uh, I asked him about it, that uh, it might be drawing on that Isaiah text. He didn't think so because in Revelation there's only one animal and in, in, in the Isaiah text there's two he's claiming. That uh, the Isaiah had both a dragon and a serpent 
whereas the dragon and the serpent were the same in Revelation. So that's why Revelation's not drawing on the Isaiah passage, and Revelation's probably referring to Genesis as well. I don't know if I buy that. I don't know if I buy that. That's, that's a little bit too coincidental to have two verses with the same phrasing uh, within the Bible and then claim that one's a reference to a completely different verse without similar phrasing. So the new ways of reading Genesis that he disputes, of course, is number one, that the serpent's actually a good guy. The second thing he responds to is uh, Francesca Scacciamola, I don't know how to pronounce this lady's name, claimed that the Eden serpent denoted snake worship, seemingly referring to Nishutan. She further maintained that the worship is implied as leading to the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, which she finds symbolized in the expulsion from paradise. So she takes this as all, all symbolic, uh, and he, he kind of denies that. Thirdly, this uh, Jonas de Moore, he argues that the Eden story has a background in Ugaritic texts. Yeah, this includes the serpent, which they see as represented by the god Horon in the Ugaritic narrative. However, the thesis is highly questionable since much of the claimed Ugaritic voltage has to be reconstructed in gaps in the narrative. And he, so he's saying there's not enough evidence for this third claim. The fourth claim that he sits and refutes is by Dwayne Smith. I don't know, Dwayne... Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, not, not, not The Rock, The Rock's not writing this, Dwayne Smith, and he says this, the Eden serpent has its background in Mesopotamian ophiomancy, that is, divination based on observation of serpents. Smith claims that the knowledge of good and evil, which the first humans acquired, means knowledge of good and bad fortune, the kind of knowledge gained through divination. He also claims that the description of the serpent as Aram could mean that it is portentous, all this seems foreign to the narrative. And so he, he refutes these four modern interpretations of Genesis. And he states this, that uh, if these aren't actually true, then what is the view? Although the view is not totally new, I think that is likely that Genesis 3 has reworked certain mythic motifs found in the Gilgamesh epic. Just as in the Eden narrative, a serpent is ultimately responsible for denying Adam and Eve access to the tree of life, therefore denying them immortality, which the tree bestows. So in the epic of Gilgamesh, the serpent is responsible for snatching the plant of life, thereby denying Gilgamesh the chance of gaining the rejuvenation, which the plant bestows. So he's drawing parallels between epic of Gilgamesh and Genesis, and there are a lot of parallels. One of the people in the sessions actually argues against this. So there's a questioner. A questioner argues against that because uh, it's, a, it's a fruit. It's not a tree in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and there's certain disconnects. But it, it's a possible. There's possible link. But which way does the link go? Did uh, Genesis 3 inspire the Epic of Gilgamesh or vice versa or both from the same narrative? Yeah, it, it's hard to reconstruct these things. I sat through all the sessions in, in this little block and uh, the firmament of earth, the logic of Genesis 120 and the visual representation in the Baal steel, which they, they took uh, a visual representation of how the firmaments are formed in this, this Baal picture that they found. And they said this is basically what's being described in Genesis. That's an interesting one. The nine portraits of patriarch, God, and sin in Genesis 12, 20, and 26. I don't know anything about that one. That one I don't think struck my fancy. And then the last one was a suitable match, Eve and Deku, and the boundaries of humanity in the Eden narrative and the Epic of Gilgamesh. All right, so this basically brings us to our Monday. So Monday morning, 
We had the writer in the clouds. Uh, William Lane Craig was here, a writer in the clouds. He's probably not at that first session I said he was at with the wings, but he was at this one. The writer in the clouds is uh, where he started talking about if if these actual pictures of winged gods were were actually uh, you know what they actually believed. Yeah, pretty funny. Uh, there was also a Nag Hammadi and Gnosticism session. Which led me to a book which talked about the Gnostic idea of foreknowledge and fate. But Cosmology and Fate in Gnosticism and Greco Roman Antiquity. I was led to this book during, I was cued into this book during the speeches, during the questions and answers when they're talking about fatalism in uh, Gnosticism. And, and I did read sections of this book, and uh, I'll have to do a more thorough read and then try to do a podcast on it if I got the time. I got so many books that I need to read. But uh, interesting stuff, Gnosticism. So after that, my next session was a David Klein's session. So now David Klein's is one of my favorite authors slash theologians slash scholars. And he's written entire dictionaries on the Hebrew language. And so everything he writes is gold. And so I go to him and he's he's part of a section on seriology, uh, like uh, all these these scholars were, it's it's the International Syriatic Language Project. So I'm sitting there and all the people around me, they're talking to me. They're like, wow, do you know the Syriatic language? It's like, no, I don't know anything about Syrian language. And so uh, David Klein's also didn't know anything about uh, Syriatic language. And his, his whole lecture was on denominative verbs in classical Hebrew. So he was really excited about this. And he starts talking about... Uh, denominative verbs and what makes a denominative verb and and how they work and how they function and all these these uh, Syriatic scholars in the room were just kind of like what is going on this this is a Hebrew language presentation at a Syriatic at a Syriatic uh, subsection and so none of them were very impressed and they 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 showed their disdain during the questions and answers but I was able to meet with David Klein's get my little photo taken with him I even got to ask him about the eyes of the Lord. Now, eyes of the Lord in Genesis 6 says that Abraham found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I posited maybe these eyes of the Lord are what's happening in Zechariah where the eyes of the Lord are these angels and they, they're searching around the world. And that, that could be what it means in Genesis 6. And he didn't think so. He didn't, he just like, well, it's, it's probably not. It's probably just there, there's some sort of favor found with God for some reason. But uh, he didn't he didn't think it was probable that it was the angels. But, you know, I'm not ruling that out. I'm not ruling out the angels being there. But David Clyde's he's good. He's a good guy. He's my guy. So skipping to the next day, there was only one session. Everything's winding down. It was pretty vacant that day. And uh, Bart Ehrman was there that day. So I went to Bart Ehrman's talk and I got to hear him him give his little speech. I met Bart Ehrman. I walked up to him and he kind of just looked at me like, like, who are you? Like, what are you talking to me for? You're, you know, it's so funny. Ellen Pagels is just like charming and fantastic. And Barman's just like everyone else is beneath him. You know, he's got, he's got no time for the little guy. Even, even someone who's a fan of his, he, he got no time, but that's okay. I don't like the guy for his personality. I like him for his output, his intellectual output. And so he's good. Uh, I, I like him overall, even though he's kind of, it's kind of a jerk, but Anyways, his his uh, lecture was on the transmission of the gospel story. And, you know, 
There's no real good takeaways from that. Uh, I'll, I'll just leave it to your imagination. You guys could go look up Bart Ehrman. You can see what he says on these things. It was, it was a review of a book. To cast the first stone, the transmission of a gospel story. And so, I don't know, kind of a waste of a Bart Ehrman being a panelist, but we take what we can get, don't we? Anyways, there's other sessions I went to. There's Abraham to Daniel and back again, exploring rabbinic practice of embedding new tales in old scripture. Oh, here's that Gnostic one. Astrological determinism, free will, and eros, according to Thecla in Medicius of Olympus Symposium. I think I found that actual text out there on the internet somewhere, too. Canonical perspectives on Abraham's family. Interesting. But all in all, this is a great conference. I had a great time. Uh, I'd go again. I'd, I'd, I'd spend money, maybe even get myself a hotel room this time and uh, go to these conferences because there's a lot of good information. There's a lot of good people. I had a blast going from session to session. I just wish, I just wish I had a voice and I wasn't just like, and you know, that was, that was a little bit of a downer. But overall, everything was fantastic. All right, if you like this episode, have any questions, put questions down in the comments section, start a thread in the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.